Well, Congress is coming for your money again, and this time it's a carbon tax. The year 2023, which we just exited, ended with four different pieces of legislation in Congress. All of them are proposing to create a carbon tax. None of them passed yet, but since three of the bills have bipartisan sponsorship, the bookmakers are telling us that the odds have risen this year that we'll see passage of some kind of carbon tax. Well, I've written and spoken quite often, actually, about this issue over the past half dozen years. But given the state of play in Congress, it's time to talk about it again. So let's start with the uh, perceptive Wall Street Journal columnist, Holman Jenkins, who in a year-end column wrote, and let me quote it exactly, you can see both parties gradually discovering how a carbon tax might help them reach a variety of policy and constituency-pleasing goals, end quote. Well, indeed, one can. Uh, but in my view, which we're going to talk about, pursuing those goals with a carbon tax is antithetical to the interests of nearly all American citizens. And those constituency-pleasing and those policy goals, again, are specifically directed at forcing society to cut back on using, maybe it should be self-evident, hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, and coal. And the reason for that is that when they're combusted, make everything possible, they emit carbon dioxide, which is the gas at the epicenter of the global climate activist industry. So the carbon tax advocates argue, correctly, might say, that today's climate-driven energy policies, which are mainly subsidies and mandates for alternative fuels, that those policies have been ineffective, uh, they have been ineffective and inefficient, because they're not only subject to bureaucratic friction and bloat in misdirection, but also kleptocratic influences. So the carbon taxers also correctly note that the subsidy mandate approach is anchored in what can only be called a hubristic assumption that government experts and bureaucrats know what fuels and energy technologies markets need and can use. So the carbon taxers believe there's a better policy, a better energy policy, which is simply to make hydrocarbons more expensive. And that will, we're told, unleash market forces to adopt or invent non-hydrocarbon alternatives. So, in fact, one of the bipartisan tax bills has got a title, the Market Choice Act. So the promoters are eager to tout the fact, the carbon tax promoters, that the carbon tax has an elegance in its simplicity, or to use the age-old adage, you tax something and you'll get less of it. Never mind that humanity has spent centuries trying to reduce the cost of energy so as to get more of it. But imagine, in fact, imagine if this debate were about food. It's a different kind of fuel, but it's one that is also ubiquitously essential. And also one for which uh, the market uh, has price signals ca that can result in, quote, responses. I mean, if you make food expensive enough, not to put, you know, to beat the point to death, you get starvation. Uh, food is essential. Food is a fuel, fuel's essential. So we have to talk about what the real impacts are of a carbon tax. You don't need to have an opinion on climate change to understand the consequences of carbon tax. And I'm not going down the climate change rabbit hole. It has nothing to do 
with the consequences of carbon tax. Uh, whatever you think about climate change is completely irrelevant because the tool we're talking about is increasing the costs of hydrocarbons. And we can understand the consequences of that uh, and why that's a bad idea. And look at, well, th just by asking um, two questions. How big of a tax is needed to get the effect sought? You know, radically reducing hydrocarbon use. Second question, and would high cost hydrocarbons in fact unleash market innovation that would yield low cost alternatives? And that uh, the you know the kind of alternatives that are otherwise languishing or being somehow suppressed. We can answer the first question by looking at what recent history uh, shows about the impact on demand for oil as prices go up. And I'm choosing oil because it's sort of the uh, touchstone of the whole energy debate, always has been, at least in the modern times. And of course, oil accounts for 40% of all hydrocarbon usage, and oil accounts. Uh, and fuels for something like 96% of all global transportation of all goods and services and people. So consider this, average oil prices, ignoring short-term volatility, average prices have increased about 200% since uh, Y2K, since the year 2000. Call that sort of a natural price inflation. So with natural price inflation of about 200%, the average price for oil over the last two decades plus, global oil consumption still rose by 25% over that time. So you don't need a degree in economics to uh, sort of scratch your head and wonder what kind of price hike would be needed to really reduce demand, not slow it. I mean, it, it, you could argue as an economist that the price rising slowed the growth. Fair enough, but it went up. Of course, a high enough carbon tax uh, would do something to hydrocarbon demand for the very simple reason. It would induce a recession, even a depression. How do I know that? That's because hydrocarbons are, again, like food, essential. It's not just that hydrocarbons, as I've said many times, and you can find this by doing a simple Dr. Google search. It's not just that hydrocarbons supply over 80% of all overall energy. That fact understates the situation. Hydrocarbons are used one way or another to provide 100% of civilization's products and services. Even all the so-called carbon-free energy technologies are necessarily built by consuming hydrocarbons elsewhere, somewhere. It stretches credulity to think that any demand impact, visible or otherwise, would come from, let's say, a 20% hike in the price of oil. By the way, 20%, pick the 20% hike because that's roughly the oil price increase that would come from what's considered a politically acceptable level for a carbon tax that's been being proposed. So there'd be no visible impact on consumption. So it'd become just another tax. In fact, it becomes a consumption tax because a consumption on everything, because everything somehow indirectly or directly uses hydrocarbons. And that means a consumption tax like that is highly regressive. It's universal. and and not having any impact on demand for hydrocarbons, it would simply fatten government coffers. Well, some carbon taxers have an idea on how to fix the regressive part to avoid punishing lower income citizens with a new tax, uh, including the kind of people, you know, that drive long distances right now to mow lawns or shovel snow or build infrastructures that make lives more comfortable for the elites and the better off people in the world and, and everybody else besides. So we don't want to punish them. So the proposals are 
uh, you know, some variation of what amounts to a round trip, if you like, for the big chunks of energy taxes that will be collected. You know, send them as rebates to the lower income households. Well, uh, this is a pretty obvious, uh, we got to have to ignore the inevitable politicization of that kind of inefficient bureaucratic round trip for anything like that kind of rebate. Uh, and maybe more importantly, on the principle we're talking about, by rebating the energy tax to a huge swath of a country, you are effectively, economics 101, reducing the cost of the energy that those people consume, which means you're doing the opposite of the whole purpose of the demand-killing point of the carbon tax in the first place. In fact, a lot of people uh, in the pro-carbon tax domains, they want to uh, propose that round trip because they think it uh, it unlocks the political viability, to use the words of a couple of uh, pro-carbon taxers. Uh, and, you know, it becomes a, a dividend sent to lower-income people uh, in exchange for a, quote, fee levied on everybody else. The problem is the fee is leveled on everything, and sending money back to people again is not only bureaucratically inefficient and therefore um, econ economically questionable, more importantly, it presumes that future Congresses won't repurpose those carbon tax revenues. And boy, is that naive. Another solution to the political problem of a new tax, carbon tax, is uh, we would find the Congress somehow eliminating some existing tax. So several of the proposed ta carbon tax bills are structured so as to uh, impose a new ubiquitous carbon tax and eliminate, you know, say the highway tax or eliminate, um, you know, fuel, fuel taxes on aviation fuel or something, right? A trade, a political trade. Again, this is this is this bureaucratic complexities uh, are highly questionable. But what's more important is in the in the political world uh, to believe that that kind of trade would actually happen is even more naive. I mean, for those of those of you who might remember uh, the presidency, uh, the one-term presidency of uh, Bush forty-one, President Bush, uh, back in the nineties, uh, he uh, pledged, if, as you may remember, no new taxes. Uh, in his election campaign. And then during his uh, tenure as the president, he agreed with the then democratically controlled Congress to in fact raise taxes, but in exchange for expen uh, you know, spending being cut. The, he signed the tax bill, the spending wasn't cut. Uh, that wasn't the first time that a political trade failed and it won't be the last. So you can hear uh, deep skepticism based on history on the trope that there'd be some trade that would in fact happen. But the most important flaw in the trade trope that putting a new tax on from carbon would somehow uh, reduce taxes elsewhere, the most important in the United States is that it would also induce from our quote leadership, other countries like China to also implement carbon taxes. Boy, is that naive, I mean, come on. That we're going to lead the way by increasing taxes on our industry and people, and other countries will follow that lead by increasing their 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 taxes uh, on carbon-intensive, energy-intensive products and services. Uh, so the solution to that, by the way, in the carbon tax world, is a so-called uh, this is a euphemism for you: carbon border adjustment mechanism. Well, that's a euphemism for an import tax, an import tariff. 
the idea is to avoid, again, elliptical language, carbon leakage. But that they mean, if you impose a tax on hydrocarbons in America, which will make manufacturing carbon-intensive goods and services, again, that's everything, more expensive, then people will start importing more things from overseas, especially China, uh, because they'll be cheaper to, and, and, and they're cheaper in large measure coming from China and other parts of the world because they use cheap energy, which is to say, especially coal. Again, for those of you who've missed earlier podcasts, coal it, uh, powers uh, two thirds of China's electric grid. Things like uh, solar photovoltaic cells are incredibly electricity and energy intensive and are manufactured on China's coal fired grids. And that's how they stay cheap. Well, we can tax the in, in embodied carbon in the Chinese solar cells and make them more expensive for Americans. Okay, that raises prices. And the theory is that will induce the Chinese to choose lower uh, carbon intensive ways to make the solar cells. That's assumed they're possible and that's assuming they'll behave, neither of which are credible. Or it's assumed to in, uh, enable the competition in America using lower carbon but higher cost processes to now compete with the higher cost imports to produce the same things here. Well, again, that assumes that we, the processes exist in America, but the most important point of this is that it's raising the cost of everything in order to make something else competitive. Uh, you know, to, to quote the inimitable John Stossel, give me a break. I mean, this is a really bad policy. This is not a way you get innovation, which brings us to the second anchor uh, pillar for a carbon tax. And it's offered also, uh, it's offered by uh, many people and Holman Jenkins, who has written frequently about it and is a very bright uh, and very, uh, very skillful writer and columnist at the Wall Street Journal. I agree with probably 90% of what he writes, I find myself, but I disagree with the 10% of the time he writes about carbon tax, which he's a you know supporter of. So I'm not singling him out per se, I'm singling him out only because he's a particularly articulate uh, promoter of the case. So what he says about the carbon tax, and I quote again, is it will constitute a highly visible commodity tax that can be readily avoided, end quote, because the higher prices would, in, would induce the use of existing uh, non-hydrocarbon technologies and stimulate an invention of new non-hydrocarbon technologies. So here's an important point. That logic concedes that initially the expensive alternatives are being adopted because of higher prices being forced on the competition. They've already said enough about why I think it's a bad idea. The key question is, how long do we have to spend higher prices before the inducing the market response to seek lower cost alternatives actually happens. I mean, it's kind of a version of uh, at first, if you, at first you don't succeed, try and try again, I guess. Really what it's more like is a version of you burned once, burned twice, and then you go ahead and you try to get burned again. By that, I mean, we've already spent trillions of dollars. Uh, the world has spent $5 trillion uh, over the last two decades, mostly in Europe and the United States to avoid hydrocarbons. What's happened is we have slightly reduced the share of world's energy from hydrocarbons. I've said this many times, a couple of percentage points, but it's not nothing, it's something. But the absolute consumption of hydrocarbons has gone up uh, by an enormous amount over that two decade period. So you could argue that it's had an effect, but it hasn't had the effect of reducing hydrocarbon use. That's 5 trillion, so we spend more. So that's burned once, burned twice. 
Well, now that we have the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which will spend not its you know uh, face uh, amount of nearly a trillion dollars, but rather the real spending is costed out by both uh, S&P and by uh, Wood McKenzie, it's more like two to three trillion dollars over the next decade of uh, stimulating and, and direct spending and subsidies on non-hydrocarbons in order to cut hydrocarbon use and again, reduce CO2 emissions. So by let's just talk about that for a second. This is the, the second bite at the apple with a lot of money being directed at the goal. And by the government's accounting, which I'll set aside whether it's credible accounting, let's just take it on face value, value. By the government's accounting that two or $3 trillion will reduce US carbon dioxide emissions by about one gigaton a year, 1 billion tons a year of emissions, okay? Um, that's if the money's fully deployed and based on various elastic assumptions, but we'll take the number. So ne ne never mind that a lot of that spending will end up directly and indirectly purchasing Chinese products with or without a carbon border adjustment mechanism because China is the globally dominant supplier of the majority of the products and components needed and will be for the decade. So here's a kicker. Now, since this is all about reducing global CO2 emissions, while we're taxing ourselves into a recession or at least slower growth and buying and we'll be buying essential energy intensive products from China. And China right now is building new, more coal plants and planning to continue to build more coal plants at a rate of about one new big coal plant roughly every week being added to the Chinese grid. So over the coming decade, the new coal plants being built by China to make electricity to provide products for the world, not for them, just for themselves, mostly of their exports, the new coal plants, just them, will add two gigatons of CO2 emissions to the world's atmosphere. So our green tax and spend policy will, in purchasing stuff from China, in theory, lead to just one gigaton per year of US reductions and CO2 emissions. It seems like a bad trade to me. Now, anyway, it obviously isn't accomplishing the goal uh, in any significant way. In fact, there's some irony here. The, uh, the carbon taxes are essentially uh, fully in line with the energy transitionists in thinking we have to accelerate somehow uh, moving away from hydrocarbons. Uh, you know the expression that in politics, there are strange bedfellows. Um, so the energy transitionists are typically on the, the political left. And now we have the carbon taxers increasingly on the political right. So, and that was where I began with my concern, let's say that there will end up with some kind of consensus. But anyway, let's come back to the uh, second key pillar of why the conservatives, if you like, or Republicans uh, are joining uh, in the, some of them are joining in the call for a carbon tax. It's anchored it really in the second key pillar of the carbon tax case. And that's that the higher prices will stimulate innovation, will stimulate new lower cost uh, forms of alternative energy. Uh, they'll do that because the sheer scale of the opportunity and of, of course, because the higher costs initially make uh, the competition more expensive, which gives a sort of a, an opening, a wedge, and then the new stuff gets invented and it gets accelerated into uh, scale to rapidly replace the old stuff, the hydrocarbons. Here's the problem with that, that theory. There's two problems with it, two broad problems. First, the alternatives are not a nascent industry waiting to scale up the high volume. The existing alternatives that are possible to build are already massive 
already in massive high volume production, even if it's not in America. The International Energy Agency, all of the uh, advocates of the energy transition are always uh, promoting and touting the fact that hundreds of billions of dollars are now being spent each year on producing the hardware for alternative energy technologies, wind, solar, and batteries, basically. It is a huge industry. It's already a big industry. It's already fully scaled. So it's true that we should expect some price declines as volumes continue to rise even from today's high levels. That's a well-known industrial phenomena called Wright's Law, right? Wright's Law, I was named after a um, engineer who observed the phenomena that uh, the as volume production continues rising, there's a statistically predictable incremental decline in the cost of each thing produced from experience, we get better at it, and from technological refinements in those industries. And it's a, a kind of a universal phenomenon, whatever it is, whether it's food or airplanes or computers, there's kind of a rights law at, at volume. But the cost declines in rights law, uh, they take time and they're really incremental. They're not they're not step function, giant changes. That's rights law is the slow incremental decline once you start producing a scale. You don't get big quantum leaps, exponential changes in rights law. I mean, you could talk to Ford and GM about this and the fact they've rediscovered in their eager embrace of pushing into higher volume production of money losing electric vehicles. Uh, rights law is not helping them there because they need a quantum change, if you like, the the proverbial, again, exponential exponential leap in efficiencies or radical innovation. So this is the key claim in the carbon tax trope is that by raising the cost of everything, we are going to get foundational innovation to avoid the higher cost of all forms of products and services. That's the essential key anchor of the entire carbon tax uh, uh, case. But this is a, uh, to put it politely, this is a really novel theory of a foundational innovation. Airplanes weren't invented because of taxes on ships. The transistor, transistor wasn't invented because of taxes on vacuum tubes. The car wasn't invented because of taxes on horses. And I would say to beat this point to death, uh, taxing whale oil did not lead to the invention of coal-derived kerosene. By the way, it was coal-derived kerosene that saved the whales, replaced whale oil because it was... A, far easier to do and far cheaper. Something I've talked about before. Nor would taxing coal have led to the invention uh, discovery of nuclear energy. They go on and on with examples. Foundational innovations of every kind. The true breakthroughs, they're inevitable. Uh, I'm gonna talk in future podcasts about this phenomena and how to get more of it. But just, just for the record, it's perhaps obvious uh, looking at human history, they seem inevitable. I think they are inevitable in the future. But historically, uh, they have a problem, uh, a feature that's really annoying, both historically and politically, especially today. They have to use uh, a formulation offered by Bill Gates. You know, foundational breakthroughs, foundational innovation have no, quote, predictor function. Right, this is uh, annoying because you don't know when they're going to happen, but you know they're going to happen. This is true for every kind of uh, technology. Once they've happened, then there is a predictor function of how long it takes for innovations to scale. And again, I've talked about that previous episodes. I'll just state again for the record, it takes time, not, not a few years, but foundational innovations to go from discovery 
to first commercialization, to scale its significance in society, takes decades, not a few years. And all of the energy producing, energy using technologies that will be available to consumers and businesses to avoid hydrocarbons and higher cost energy and services, the technologies that are available today, whether they're energy producing or energy using, are the technologies that will be available for the next decade or more at any kind of scale. We're gonna be stuck, whether you like it or not, uh, setting aside motivations with using what we already know how to build for quite a long time. But there isn't an obvious market response available to avoid a punitive carbon tax. Um, put it very simplistically, people will drive less, fly less, whether for business or vacation. They'll own smaller cars, which will re reverse decades-long preference for SUVs. People will consume less beef. They'll live in uh, rooms in both homes and offices that are warmer in the summer and colder in the winter and all, all other versions of that for all forms of goods and services. Because if you raise carbon taxes enough, you will get that effect. That's what will happen because the limited commodity in every economy, even wealthy economies, is always money. If you make things expensive, it is true. Uh, you will, quote unquote, curb energy using choices, energy using behaviors. But again, the, the really hammerous point <laughs> into the ground, all choices and all behaviors are directly indirectly dependent on consuming hydrocarbons society, which means we're trying to affect all forms of behaviors one way or the other with a carbon tax. And you, you could you would get the impression from uh, popular media accounts and from political operatives and, and lobbyists that there's you know, some kind of scientific debate over whether or not it's possible to dramatically cut down hydrocarbon use. There's, there's, there may appear to be a debate, but in fact, there is no debate. Even the International Energy Agency's energy transition scenarios, their hoped for scenarios for an accelerating an energy transition, even those scenarios show that hydrocarbons still dominate the supply of global energy 10 or 20 years from now, even 30 years from now. So it bears repeating that energy and because hydrocarbons are the dominant form of energy used in society, that energy is used for everything. It's not discretionary. Let me put sort of some uh, flesh on the bones of what, what that means if you sort of count the entire uh, pantheon of embodied uh, features of using energy to do things. It takes about a barrel of oil equivalent. And I'm using equivalent because it could be natural gas and it could be coal. And, uh, and of course, at, there's other forms of energy as I, as, that are in the mix, but there's always hydrocarbons. So just doing the barrels of oil equivalent, which is a, a useful way to think about uh, energy. In barrels of oil equivalent, it takes about one BOE, barrels of oil equivalent, one BOE to produce 25 barrels of milk. It takes about one BOE to make 20 smartphones. It takes about one BOE to make an ounce of gold. It takes about 15 BOEs to fabricate a solar array for a home, uh, about 15 barrels of oil equivalent to fabricate a conventional car. It takes about 30 barrels of oil equivalent to manufacture an electric car. Uh, this is this is just the embodied energy is, to, again, restate, because it's really important, it is in everything. In fact, the carbon taxers and carbon obsessors in the United Kingdom, they have already done studies and are worried about the energy cost of pets. Um, to put a uh, energy uh, framing on that in the same terms, it takes 
about four BOE over the lifetime of a pet dog to uh, own the dog. So you can eliminate that energy by not having pets and they want you to not have pets. Uh, I'll put it in dollar terms, which I've done in earlier podcasts and that helps frame, uh, frame it and econ economically frame it uh, in our modern economy. Every billion dollars spent building aircraft will lead to about $2 billion in hydrocarbon fuel purchases over a decade. And we spend hundreds of billions of dollars building aircraft or more relevant to our modern times, every billion dollars spending spent building data centers. And again, we're spending hundreds of billions a year building data centers globally, but every single billion dollars spent building data centers leads to about $8 billion of electricity purchases over a decade of operating that data center. And the data center industry, by the way, subject we're gonna come back to in a future podcast, the data center industry has just put the pedal to the metal in energy terms as uh, data centers adopt artificial intelligence, which is the most energy intensive form of computing ever, ever imagined or invented. So for the foreseeably useful future and to have a vibrant and growing society, we're gonna have to continue to use and even expand use of hydrocarbons, just the nature of the beast. But given our times, uh, you could understand why there's some political motivation amongst many uh, in Congress to try to, and this is by the way, includes the skeptics of a, of a climate, the so-called skeptics of a climate apocalypse. There's a high degree of political motivation to find a compromise to do, you know, do something. Well, uh, there's a different compromise possible, if I may, may offer one, and I'm not the first to offer this, and it is one that's gaining some, uh, slowly gaining some political currency. And I, and I really do understand the need for political compromise. In the real world, we have to deal with the fact that we all have different opinions about things and you can get some things to happen by compromising. So what would the compromise be uh, with respect to the two sides of the debate? Um, climate change, the, those who want to eliminate hydrocarbons and we can't, and those who want to do something about the uh, risks of climate change in the future. Government programs, the answer is government programs could be directed at adaptation and resilience to any and all of the various challenges that nature throws at civilization. Storms, whether they're extreme or not, natural disasters, different kinds of weather, weather disasters, making uh, infrastructures and supply chains more resilient and adapting to uh, nature's insults is beneficial no matter what you think about the future climate of the planet. Meanwhile, a uh, carbon tax would be harmful no matter what you think about the future climate of the planet. It would take money away from markets. It wouldn't reduce hydrocarbon use at all. That's the problem. So, but, you know, I began on what amounts to a pessimistic note, at least in my, in my book, that uh, we have a high probability of a carbon tax happening because of bipartisan momentum I want to end on an optimistic note. <laughs> Maybe it's a cynically optimistic note. Uh, given the fractiousness of our Congress these days, and I understate by using that word, the prospects for consensus on anything these days is rather low. So I'm pretty optimistic that that uh, that such a consensus that, that such a failed consensus would also include um, implementing and passing a carbon tax. Uh, I think we're unlikely to see that happen this year in the political climate we're in. At least I'm optimistic that that won't happen. 
we can talk about Congress can take on other ways to try to deal with the issue, the, the thorny challenge. Uh, I vote for, again, adaptation and resilience spending, um, building better, stronger uh, infrastructures and uh, services is a great thing. In future episodes, I'll also talk about uh, what a more realistic path might look like for uh, getting more energy from non-hydrocarbon sources, not to replace hydrocarbons, but in, in absolute terms, but to replace the need for growth in hydrocarbons. It's going to be a non-trivial challenge. Uh, we need to find lots of new energy sources to complement the suite of options available to civilization to fuel an economically expanding world. And I am, as you know, optimistic about economic expansion, provided we get our politics right, because I think we are, to uh, repeat at the beginning uh, of this new year, uh, we are nonetheless, despite our challenges, on the cusp of a great economic expansion as I have uh, written and said in my book, The Cloud Revolution. I think the data are there. We just have to unleash it. So that's it for this episode. Uh, please take time uh, to give us a rating. Positive one, of course, is what we like. Uh, if you want to complain, feel free. <laughs> in fact, send me a note. Uh, listen, I, I respond to every email uh, that I get and texts and uh, in-mails and all the rest on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I will be... Uh, Continue to uh, respond to questions and objections and uh, new ideas for a future podcast. So please, uh, please keep doing that. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Optimist.